millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, this is Virginia. Events over recent years have highlighted racial inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. Here at Broad Talk, we recognise that the path towards true reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us, all the time. In that spirit, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we record this podcast, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. The system is broken. I don't get the rules at all. How far? Can we work within a system that we need to get rid of? I think men feel somehow women's liberation is a threat to their manhood. And it is. Tragically, I couldn't give a shit whether you think I have a right to speak up about anything or not. People who make revolutions get burnt. We started it here! Crazy, speak up about it, mental illness. Change takes time. Do you have any regrets? No. Hello and welcome to Broad Talk, the Changemaker series. I'm Virginia Hausiger and it's lovely to have your company for this very special series that we're bringing you in partnership with MOAD, the Museum of Australian Democracy, housed here in Canberra in Old Parliament House, where I've had the wonderful, pretty amazing honour of being guest curator of a new exhibition on Australian women changemakers. So in this series, we're going to dive or we're diving into the personal stories of some of those outstanding women, both young and old and spanning a very diverse range of backgrounds. And while their stories are incredibly different, there is a consistent theme and that is courage, amazing courage and I guess what I like to call guts. (laughs) And to each of these women, I ask about the moment that fired them into action. We talk about the challenge, um, the failures along the way, their source of inspiration. And also, we touch on the issue of cost. What does it cost you to be a big change maker, to, to put yourself out there? So stick with us for this series as you're in for a feast of raw and real and very inspiring stories. Now you can download Broad Talk and a new episode will drop into your feed each Friday and reach out. Let us know your thoughts. You can email us at hello at broadtalk.net, Broad Talk, of course, or one word, or find us on Insta at Broad Talkers, Facebook at Broad Talk, or you can find me on Twitter, 
most days at Virginia underscore house, H-A-U-S-S. And we've also got a little website now, um, broadtalk.net, so you can drop into that and subscribe to the newsletter and I'll send you an occasional update on what's happening. Perhaps even share a little bit of, you know, what's playing on my mind. But now, Mary Crooks. Mary is the Executive Director of the Victorian Women's Trust and a very well-known trailblazer. Mary's someone who came into my orbit when I was a pretty young journalist working in the Victorian Press Gallery. Um, Gosh, back last century, (laughs) back in the 80s and 90s or the early 90s. But Mary was one of those women I, I saw as being a really ballsy, feminist, pioneer, um, one of those sort of ballsy women that Victoria seems to have been very good at producing and, and nurturing. But unlike some of our other women change makers who really push out alone, Mary has always struck me as someone who is renowned as being very focused on the collective working with groups, consulting widely. And consequently, she's never really stood out in the spotlight on her own. Mary Crooks, welcome to Broad Talk. Thank you, Virginia. It's so lovely to to have you along. And look, I want to kick off by asking you, was there ever a moment or a, a, a single event in your life that really activated or deepened your resolve to to do something, to change something? Uh, Look, I think probably the standout event for someone in my late teenagehood uh, was the Vietnam War, to be honest. Uh, It was being still at school as a secondary student uh, at a a convent uh, where the nuns didn't seem overly perturbed about the war and the carnage and I was struggling to hold on to my Catholic views I was struggling with the fact that the Catholic Church seemed to be silent on the morality that lay behind the Vietnam War. So I I think that was a real turning point because I challenged it at school. I incurred the wrath of some nuns who thought I was being incredibly, you know, treacherous (laughs) of the Australian cause. Mm. Uh, And... And I got to Melbourne University, you know, not long after that, took part in the first moratoria and just was able to find a voice other than being a schoolgirl alarmed Mm. about it. Mary, Um, what about at home? Were you having those sorts of conversations uh, um, with a sort of a social justice um, ethos back at home? Very much so, Virginia. My my mum and dad... Uh, were um, neither of them was tertiary educated. They they both went through the depression. They they were incredibly smart people who didn't have the the fine touches of a tertiary education. Um, they were, you know, in lots of uh, senses, you know, more more intelligent and smart than a lot of people I've met along the way, to be honest. And we had lots of conversations around our humble home uh, in Haywood uh, mm. at that time and. And it was an interesting tension. We'd have these conversations at home with my mum and dad on on the war, on Tory government, on uh, social justice, and then I'd go to school and, and find that, you know, I was hearing contradictory views. So there was this little tension in my teenagehood that I think left its mark on me. 
tell me a little bit about those nuns, though, um, because you they obviously had quite an impression on you as as in, for any of us who have gone through an education with nuns, as I did too, it, you know, it leaves a very strong impression. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I mean, I don't want to be down on it so much, uh, but and there were some remarkable women mm. who were my teachers who were nuns. Uh, and there were some less remarkable ones. But I think it was the context was really not so much about the nuns in the convent but the oppressive um, religion dimension to it that, that I realised in my lifetime since that I, I think I'm quite possibly uh, a fairly deeply spiritual person in a lot of senses of the word, but I have become increasingly impatient and irritable and angry by by formal religion uh, mm. as expressed in you know the Catholic religion especially you went on to to actually um, in your professional life to do some work with nuns or former nuns and some advocacy work and mediation what was that about well well that was quite a remarkable little project actually out of the blue often is the case that in my work at the Victorian women's Trust you get desperation calls from women. Uh, and one such call was from a woman who had been a former religious and she came to me and I listened to her story uh, and, you know, it was heartbreaking really having spent so much time for her order, uh, unpaid of course and uh, not well supported. But uh, when she left the order, having made a terrific contribution, uh, she was left with nothing. There was no mm. departure policy or practice in place and she had she had a lot of mental health issues and difficulties and relative poverty ever since, and that just struck me as a very unjust, a, a really unjust situation. And so, I said to her that we couldn't actually help much on the material front, but we could research it. And so we went out and we listened to many many stories from women and men, I might add, in monasteries and other male orders. And we published the research called The Paradox of Service. Mm. And what I didn't realise at the time, Virginia, is that that was actually, it appeared the first time that the lid was lifted of mm. this question of men and women who had given enormous amounts of personal sacrifice in the in the aim or, you know, with the focus on religious life. And when they couldn't sustain that vocation and departed, uh, they were just subject to the most... Mm. Um, inhumane of treatment at an ethical and practical level. I thought that was quite shocking. We set up at the Trust without a budget, uh, we set up our own little independent advocacy program, high, highfalutin name. Myself and two wonderful volunteers, Susan and Hilary, we trained ourselves up as uh, um, arbiters uh, and we listened to these former nuns' stories or uh, Hillary and Susan did most of that legwork, and we ended up going into bat for mm. those women because mm. they they were so they were so damaged, so traumatized by what had happened to them that there was no way known they could have re-entered uh, the the front door and made a plea on their own behalves. Mary, that first nun who came to you was actually very lucky that she did and that she found you because uh, of all the change makers I know, you are the sort of person that would respond in that that way of first and foremost going out and finding the information and consulting and speaking to others. I, I want to ask you about 
your methodology? Because since ever since you became executive director of the Victorian Women's Trust in the mid nineties, as I said in the in the beginning of this, you have really focused on collaboration, collaboration, collaboration. It's a real participatory democracy sort of process, kitchen table conversations. Why do you believe so much in bringing everyone together to collaborate and consult? For a number of reasons. It's a really good question. Before I came to the Women's Trust, I had, in fact, a number of very, very substantial opportunities uh, at the time of the Kane government in the 1980s. You, you were 90s. a policy advisor for Premier Kane, weren't you? Uh, well, I, initially when he was Shadow Minister for Planning, I was his researcher and speechwriter, which was a phenomenal experience because I, I feel as though I learned a lot of my political ethics from mm. John Kane himself. Mm. You know, he was one of a generation in my view and a very ethical person. Um, but I went on to, uh, on his watch when he was Premier I chaired the inaugural Youth Policy Development Council, which was the first of its kind in Australia. I went on to chair the Social Justice Consultative Council, uh, and they were all uh, very, they were fantastic opportunities for me to put into practice what I think was largely an intuitive response Mm. on my part around collaboration being the best ethic. But I think, Virginia, the, the transformative experience for me was when I was appointed to the Brunswick-Richmond Powerline Panel, which sounds in this day of energy crisis really weird. But essentially, to cut a long story short, we, the panel, the two men and myself, we resolved an issue that had been boiling away for well over a decade, unresolved, parliamentary inquiries, mm-hmm. all sorts of things thrown at it and unresolved. And, and we resolved that in a matter of 18 months and we found a solution that had in fact existed a decade before at lower cost, I might add. Mm. But we had found a solution that would have saved a decade of enmity, of poisonous relationships, of behaviours that in the end weren't furthering the common good at all. Is your point though that you, you, you managed to come to that uh, point because of the consultation process that you adopted? My point is that uh, I took, behind the scenes, I took the the prominent role on the panel of designing the public processes that would underpin the Powerline Review Panel. Uh, It was something that the the two men involved, they were terrific in their own rights, but this was not something that um, attracted them. So I designed the public processes. I designed the processes that brought the protagonists together making them behave in front of one another and listen to one another and so on. And and so the point is that because we resolved it, I then set about to think, well, why why did that divisive issue remain unresolved for so long to the detriment of community? When, when in so fact, on. it was resolvable if you brought two parties it, together it in a resolvable. way that got them to talk. Ab- absolutely. So so it just, it, it just felt a big... Uh, you know, flashing lights to me of mm. if we can get our public processes right, uh, we just can be far more efficient and effective and we can resolve complex and vexed issues on behalf of the public. So tell us a little bit about the, the Purple Sage project, which you started in the late 90s, and, and kitchen table conversations. And I want to preface this by saying when I first heard about the Purple Sage project and the idea of 
going out to literally thousands of people and getting them to organise small groups to sit around a kitchen table and have conversations. I thought, and this is being quite frank here, I thought as a young journalist that that was just waffle. (laughs) <laughs> that that's potentially going to be just a big waste of time and, the, and that the wonderful thing about feminist groups sometimes was uh, sullied some, somewhat by women spending too much time talking. Now, that, that, that's a really bold thing to say, but it's true. No, no, that's no. What I and, thought. and you weren't the only one I picked up on. There were various <laughs> other journalists who thought it was a bit, bit of a twee kind of mm. thing. You know, in fact, so my point is that when I came to the Trust, I, I had – you know, a fairly substantial experience in being able to design public processes. The Coot Island Fire was another example. So I knew, I, I had a deep faith that good process, good public process can work. I So I hadn't put it out there in lights. I hadn't trumpeted it. I just knew. So when I got to the trust, it, in part, I actually threw my hat in the ring for the job at the trust because three women, Angela... Um, Munro and Sandra Hart and I had lunch as friends in mm. the winter of our discontent in 1996 because we saw the rampaging privatisation agenda of the government at the time and and we were we were distressed and a lot of people were distressed and we sort of thought, what can we do? And we decided to come back in a month's time with our plans for what could we do because we were just three solo women. I came back a month later to the same lunch spot uh, and I said, I know what I'm going to do first. I'm going to put my application in for this job at the Women's Trust. Mm-hmm. And Angela and, uh, and Sandra just thumped the air and said, yeah, 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 yeah. Point- was that because you saw that as a vehicle that would allow you or help you or enable you to, to, do, to, to do the sorts of things you wanted to do in public policy, but particularly in women's policy? Uh, you've absolutely nailed it. It was, it was the fact that we saw that the impacts of that policy agenda under that government were uh, very stark on women especially. Uh, We had no platform as three individual women. I needed a platform. We needed a platform to do it. I felt justified in being able to put in a case to support my job that the Women's Trust needed to step out of, uh, I put it more politely than this at the time, but I felt as though the trust hadn't realised its potential. I felt as though it mm-hmm. hadn't it hadn't really looked at all the ways it could get out there in the public domain for women. And so it was a perfect coming together of factors. You just said something really important, that you needed a platform. Mm. Can you just – I understand what you mean, but I find particularly because in this series we're speaking to a range of different women and some very young women who've created their own platform. They have become the platform, I suppose. Tell me, Talk to me a little bit about that. I mean, how important it was for – well, we understand how important it was for you to have a platform, but is is that – is that really necessary or can one just push out and do the sort of work you were doing by creating your own platform? I think creating your own platform uh, has uh, very significant downsides to it. I think when I say creating a platform, it meant for me that I could have the legitimacy of formal collaboration, that I could have a board that would hold me accountable, that I could use the institutional status of the trust to talk to donors, to support projects. I felt as though it would give me a legitimacy to 
engage with stakeholders so that it wasn't, I was no longer an individual. I was actually the executive director of this organisation with an idea for a statewide collaboration. So it gave me an authority and a and a gravit a relative gravitas, not to you at the time, but to others. <laughs> no, it uh, did. It did. I, I mean, I was very impressed, but also, yes, I guess being a cynical journalist, question. But I think I think the, the Virginia, it, a lot of it comes down to. I mean, I I have a um I have a personal maxim, my own definition, for example, of independence. To me, independence is spreading my dependency around as many people as possible. <laughs> And and I think I love it. A, I love it in a formal structural sense. I mean, I I can be I can have talent and experience and know how to do things, but but the best comes out in me when I am surrounded by good people, strong people, accountabilities, and so on. And I thrive in that kind of environment. Well, what happens, Mary, when you don't have that around you and when those around you haven't got the, you know, you, the same drive as you, the same high expectations as you? What happens? Well, I think, well, I don't know. <laughs> but, well, no, I don't know in my own personal circumstances because, because we've always had a very small team uh, at the Women's Trust of really passionate and talented and dedicated people, mainly women. Uh, and and because we are totally reliant on donor funds, I think there's a certain pressure to keep the faith and to actually mm-hmm. perform above expectation. And we have punched above our weight the entire time for a small outfit. So I think, so I don't know what failure looks like from that point of view, but what I do know in watching some other women at times who who can be just wondrously passionate and focused on change, but unless unless they actually build a base and can take people with them, the chances of burnout uh, and losing momentum and and even failing uh, those chances are heightened. I, I think it's all about trying to take people with you and to build a really strong team around you. That's such an important point. I want to come back and talk a little bit more about that and also your extraordinary work with Julia Gillard and for Julia Gillard at the worst of her position, her um, time as, as, as Prime Minister. But we're just going to take a quick break and back in a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back. And Mary Crooks and I talking about the value of having... A good team around you and behind you and the danger of, of pushing out on your own. And as I said, I want to also want to talk about Julia Gillard, Mary, but just, just elaborating on that potential for burnout. You, unlike other change makers, you don't seem to have experienced that. I mean, you have been going literally for, gosh, three, four decades. Four decades? I know you're in your early 70s now, but yeah, about, about four plus decades. And you don't seem to be showing any sign of, of, Slowing down? No, on the and on the contrary, I can't see myself slowing down. Uh, I can see myself, uh, you know, needing to disengage from the trust to allow new leadership to take over. But that won't mean I'm retiring. It means I will re-engage elsewhere. Um, I just can't imagine not being engaged in doing stuff uh, mm. that improves community and society and so on. So yeah, I've. I mean, I have a lot of energy. I'm a high energy person, but I have my flat times. But I think the thing that that people don't see, Virginia, is that I'm actually much more introverted uh, and reflective than people recognise. I've had to be more extroverted in my job at the Trust, but I I like nothing more than time to self. I have been frustrated at times even in my marriage that, you know, I, I need to deliberately find time to myself even though I have a great partnership. And the thing is that if I didn't have that thinking time, I would not be able to do what I've done. It's it's just that people don't see that side of me. So how do you manage to quarantine time space to give yourself that time? I mean, are you very rigid about when you w- will work and when you won't? Look, I can't. It's interesting. The You know, I consider myself, you know, in the best sense of the word, that I stalk things. Um, <laughs> I know, you know, stalking's got a terrible um, name and so it should, but but I, I am constantly mulling over things. Mm, same, uh, same. Uh, about, you know, when to make a decision and what the decision is and, you know, my staff in the past would roll their eyes when I'd come and say, I've just thought about that again and I think we need to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, course correction, if you talk to the staff at the Trust and you said, tell us about course correcting, they, <laughs> they would they would laugh and roll their eyes because to me course correcting is not about managing chaos. It's actually about all the time refining your judgment and settling on something that will work uh, and and course correction comes from mulling, from stalking something, from giving it that private time. Does that mean that you are also saying to yourself and staff that didn't work or this isn't working, this pathway is not working, therefore we will redirect? Absolutely. I, I mm. formed my own model a long, long time ago of purpose, aim, objectives, methodology, product and outcome. It's a model that is missing in a lot of the tertiary textbooks and I've it's just second nature to me. Mary, I've just come up with uh, what I think you need to do when you do pull back from the trust a little bit and move on to something else, as you just said, your words. The book, 
we need the change makers guide to surviving um, four decades plus of advocacy work, I think, mm. um, because you've got the methodology. You've got the methodology down pat. But look, and look, I'm being a bit facetious when I say that. I don't know if you'd want to do that. But I do want to ask you about Julie Gillard because this is interesting in that back around 2012, 2013, um, when she was having a very, very difficult time as Prime Minister, you did some pretty extraordinary things. You you were very, and, and you, when I say you, the, the, the Victorian Women's Trust was very um, vocal and demonstrative in its support for Gillard, which was interesting because you've always tried to be pretty apolitical, but you went as far as doing things like publishing full-page ads that were commentary about her or supporting her. Mm. I think we called it uh, giving credit where credit's due. Tell me a little bit about why you took that stance. Well, and I remain proud, Virginia, of the fact that the the Victorian Women's Trust was the only organisation to step out there in the public realm and defend Gillard when she was Prime Minister. Now, we could afford to do so because we are independent. We're not apolitical, but we're not aligned um, because, you know, utterances and advocacy and whatever is always political. But when Gillard became Prime Minister, we thrilled along with a lot of women and men, to mm. the fact that we had our first female Prime Minister in our history. And, look, it was almost as though the day after, the week after, I detected that the ambience had started to change uh, and that the the attacks, the subtle attacks and the misogyny started to expose itself. And I, I'm hazy on the dates, but I do remember going to my board and saying, this is what's happening. Are we going to be the kind of feminist agency that wrings our hands and sucks our teeth and says it's terrible mm-hmm. or are we going to do something about it? And the board agreed and they gave me licence to start to research and write about what was happening at that time. And so I, we, I wrote and we published um, a document called A Switch in Time which unpacked not just the misogyny around Gillard but it unpacked the fierce and unwarranted attacks on the minority government at the time. And it also unpacked, because we'd done a lot of work around women and water, we unpacked the fact that back then in 2012, Australia had all of the major cornerstones in place for a halfway decent response to climate change Mm, mm. with the work of Ross Garneau and others. We unpacked Mm. all of that in a switch in time to show how much was being destroyed before our very eyes, Mm. and to depict the extraordinary double standards around Gillard and men who are in that position, unpacked it all. And and because of that, it was interesting, our office was inundated with uh, feedback from women and men about a switch in time. It was as though we had lanced a boil, to be honest, and we, we were party to an amazing amount of feedback from people who were feeling so aggrieved and discombobulated and angry and powerless about what was happening before their eyes. But, Mary, did it change anything? Because what what happened in, in well, if we're to look back and it's all very well being clever with hindsight, isn't it, but what happened in the political climate really was that things spun out of control and got worse, and we, we saw that under the Morrison government. Yes. Um, so so a stitch in time, whilst it gave people an avenue to voice, 
and articulate their frustration and despair. Did it make any difference? I, I believe it made a huge difference. So, for example, on because I felt we had a window into people's feelings and sentiments, which the mainstream media wasn't picking up on, which is why when when um, Gillard was going into, looked like going into an election um, in 2010, uh, no, sorry, 2013, as um, Prime Minister of a minority government, and we saw Rudd circulating or, or you know, circling. Mm. Um, circling. But, <laughs> yes, circling. But, <laughs> like uh, a shark. And, and, and circulating. But, but um, I had said to the board again, look, we need, as an agency, we need to decide can we pay a tribute to her leadership as Prime Minister under these destructive circumstances? Can we endorse her leadership going into the election without looking as though we're endorsing the ALP? Because I think we need to. And we had decided to do that and I'd raised funds from donors to do so. Uh, and then when, when Rudd was circling, I thought, well, we can't just take out this one-page advertisement, credit where credit's due. We can't take it out if she's defeated by Rudd in the caucus because it's just mm-hmm. wasting donors' money. So, again, I took myself off for a long walk, Virginia, mulling over this and came to the conclusion that we could do either of two things. If she survives the attack from from Rudd and goes into the election as Prime Minister to govern in her own right, then we will propose a, a toast to her leadership mm. as a feminist leader. Mm. If she gets defeated by Rudd, we will turn it into a tribute to her. Mm-hmm. to pay tribute to her leadership. So we did that. Those ads published in The Age in the Sydney Morning Herald reached an estimated 9 million readers. Wow. Our office was our office was deluged for weeks. Virginia, we had we had men and women on the phone in tears. Mm-hmm. We raised a further $7,000 just from little people's money. The mm-hmm. first donation, 200 bucks. From mm. a 92-year-old World War II veteran called Max saying, thank you, ladies. Oh, wow. We had, we had the same <laughs> ad translated into Greek, Italian, and for Kevin's sake, Mandarin, mm-hmm. uh, and we published it in ethnic newspapers. The point is that we saw into the sentiment of millions of Australians, women and men, through that ad. And mm. so when you talk about impact, that ad in particular, I think, had enormous impact. It was audacious. Mm. Uh, people people even come up to me still and say, I remember reading that ad, Credit Where Credit's Due, and I think we articulated what millions of Australian men and women were thinking and feeling. Well, I think, I, I think you, well, sorry for interrupting, but, yeah, you did, and you're also so ahead of your time, though, that – Kind of, it kind of. I, I hesitate to say it because it's not a criticism, but it kind of stopped at the border. In that, you know, I, I'm situated here in Canberra, and I think sometimes we have a bloody force field around this place. But, but it kind of didn't penetrate as far as the parliament itself, even though you were the first to really, as you say, lance that boil that exploded. I reckon in 2021 um, with with public discontent. discontent. I think that the 2020, the 20, uh, the May the first, sorry, the May the 21st election just gone. I think that's been a slow 
a slow burn over mm. the last decade of women's engagement, lack of engagement, disquiet around uh, federal government in particular. I think that the 21st of May election in large part is a story about women's discontent and marginalisation in public policy terms over the last decade especially. I think the kind of the kind of outpourings we saw uh, over credit where credit's due told us that there's a significant population of women and men, I might add. Mm. We had incredible feedback from men uh, and it taught us back then uh, or it reaffirmed for us the enormity of men and women being able to work together on these gendered feminist issues because there were a lot of Australian men who were very, very ill at ease with the treatment of Gillard. We saw the misogynist, we knew about the trolls, we heard it, the, the unparalleled attacks in Parliament itself, but there was a huge reservoir of goodwill towards Gillard, not just her the person, but to her as a female Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. And I think it's terribly important to work with that reservoir of goodwill. It reminds us too in what you're saying that that these processes do take time, uh, and because yes, it it was a slow build, as you said. Well, I think the important thing, Virginia, is that, and I've just written a little blog piece for the Trust this week, that that after the Brittany Higgins rape allegation and after the marches for justice last year, you know, only in April uh, by April March March April last year that it's a little-known fact that the women's vote, the women's support for the coalition plummeted straight away. Remember the then Prime Minister Morrison saying, we're lucky we're not Oh, we were shot. lucky we weren't shot, yes. Yeah. And also so, that the failure of the then Minister for Women to show her face or turn correct. up or say anything was and just... And what they, what they didn't realise in that Canberra bubble is that women... women have been carrying a quiet fury all of their lives, you and me and just about every woman, because we've suffered in different ways at the hands of entitled, patronising, patriarchal male behaviour. And women notice this and it builds. It Mm. builds and then it Mm. it manifests. Mm. Now, the vote for the coalition plummeted in March, April last year and it never recovered. It never recovered. And I, I said months and months ago that Australian women will be the factor that largely drives the change in government in 2022. And how I, right you were, how right you were. We've well, just seen you know, it in the 2022 you could, election. You could read all of the signs because mm. we've known through our work around climate change, through our watermark, through the Monster Climate Petition years ago, we've known that all of the big-ticket issues uh, that have cut women up are around integrity, around asylum seeker cruelty, uh, around climate change, around the disdain shown towards the Uluru Statement from the Heart. We've been reading that lie of the land really closely. So, you know, it, it was it was a women, an example of women changing government in my view, uh, and the mainstream media may not pick up on that very much. doesn't matter. Because mm. I think the, fact the public is, do, the public do, and the, the public, public did. Yeah. Mary, in the short moment moments we've got left, I, I want to ask you about anger. 
Because it, and, and this is really on the back of what you've just said, that slow build of fury and anger, anger and, and uh, I think just despair over the treatment of women. But you yourself, I want to make, uh, come, drill this down to the personal. You yourself, I know, have, have at times being the subject of attack, uh, as any woman in a, in, in a public role like yours, um, is at some stage. But, uh, you've said things such as anger is not oh sorry anger is to be transcended and you have have commented on a time when you have felt white hot anger and you've also said that you've been on the receiving end of some vicious undermining by other women so tell me how do you manage your own anger well there's no simple answer to that virginia uh, except to say as a couple of you know guiding rules you, one can't stay in a place of anger to me. Uh, anger is a legitimate emotion. It's a totally understandable emotion. But you, but in my view, you know, and it's just sort of my own folksy wisdom on things, that uh, nothing is gained by staying in a place of anger, that it must be transcended, uh, not to be whited out, not to be repressed, but to be embraced and then you have to process it for what to do, what to do in a way that is productive for yourself and productive for others. All I know is you can't stay there being angry. So you have to actually find a way to process it and to be able to move on to a point of doing stuff that is actually constructive, built from the anger and is constructive. And when you've been personally attacked, as you have been at times, um, your style of management uh, at the trust has been attacked and also your decision to do some public events, or one in particular I'm thinking of uh, where you did a Q&A with a woman who said some very controversial things. Yes, about... Yes, Julie, um, who who takes a, a controversial position on transgender women yeah. and other issues, and uh, you came under uh, you know a hail of attack for that. But how do you not take that personally? Well, you do take it personally. Uh, it's not it's not possible to to um, feel attack like that um, without it being impacting on you personally. Uh, but it's you can't stay there. That's my point. Uh, and you have to try and understand the attack and you have to, I mean, when I was attacked, um, you know, about six years ago by a group of women who who actually rallied after we had attacked, uh, we had sacked a staff member uh, and they used that as their cause celeb uh, and uh, and our hands were tied. We couldn't speak about it publicly. But the attack on my person and my ethics and my professionalism was 100%. Uh, and I nearly went under. I certainly nearly went under at that point um, within, you know, a, a six-month period. Uh, I felt, you know, as a country kid attending those fairgrounds, you know, with the mm-hmm. you'd take the, um, uh, the, um, the guns and, you know, shoot the duck and the duck would, the, the pellet duck guns, you know, and the duck mm-hmm. would fall away, but then it would come up again with mm-hmm. pellet marks all over it. And that's how I felt. I felt mm-hmm. as though I was, uh, you know, really just about submerged. But, um, mm-hmm. but again, Virginia, because of 
my own ability to to think uh, what's under attack here and to to know that to know my truth that was important but also I had a great partner supporting me at home great female friends that I could talk to about things I had great support uh, and I just don't think that you can survive these situations unless you have back to my definition of independence unless you have people where you can be totally honest uh, and and call out for support and avail yourself of support but you have to know your own truth and you have to mm. stick with that truth uh, if if the attacks that came at that time had any element of evidence and truth about them I would have responded differently I would have handed in my resignation mm-hmm. but I knew it was Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's wrong. Mm. And people who knew me and all the staff who worked with me knew it was wrong. Uh, and we stayed, we stayed fast. It hurt. It was damaging, um, but we we I was steadfast. Mary, it's so it's been so wonderful uh, talking with you. I wish we could talk all day because there's so much more I'd like to ask you. But it's been it has been really fascinating. And well, I realised also, Virginia, we 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 got ourselves sidetracked about purple sage and the whole mm. that that whole. Um, a collaborative ethic because I didn't get to talk about how Purple Sage was the beginning of what to me is ultimately a feminist view on how you do public process in a society. Well, yes. and, and Another one, time. Well, another time. But, but also one that I think, and I was going to touch on, um, that I think we have seen or we're seeing um, move out into the wider community as a result of the teal independence, et cetera, and the voices movement, which I know you've been part of too, um, that that style of community collaboration has taken off much more broadly. But you know what, Mary, we'll have to do more at another okay. time. But it's been so, so lovely um, speaking with you and I, I appreciate it enormously your um, giving us this, being so generous to give us this time. And I look forward to further discussions and thank you for being part of the Changemakers, Australian Women Changemakers exhibition and series. No, and thank you, Virginia, and good on you for doing it. 
Oh, look, it's it's an absolute honour. It's, it's a complete honour to, to be doing this. And to all of you who've stayed with us to, to listen uh, to this particular episode, thank you. And I hope you join us again for the next one. We've got some amazing women um, throughout this series and so, so much to learn. And uh, I know I feel like I'm um, learning a great deal. So thank you for joining us. And don't forget, you can contact us anytime at hello at broadtalk.net or virginia at broadtalk.net and uh, let us know what's on your mind and do subscribe to that newsletter um, and I'll get in touch with you every now and then. But in the meantime, as I say each week, don't forget, keep talking. Keep talking.